Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. We've spent a few weeks covering behaving ourselves in the house of God. I want to spend the next few weeks dealing with practical Christian living on the matter of holiness. It is not a dirty word. But a lot of believers treat it like it is. Treat it like it's a word that means drudgery for any believer. And that's not the case. For the believer in Jesus Christ, he has saved us to walk a holy walk. We want to talk about practical holiness tonight, but let's read the scripture first. Notice beginning in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed and henceforth we should not serve sin. Now mark that verse especially. We're not going to say a whole lot about this verse tonight. We will in the weeks ahead. But this is the key verse of this whole passage. This is something we're supposed to know. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified, not was... Our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Hallelujah. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. And in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? His servants ye are to whom ye obey. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So tonight we're going to talk about holiness, the basis for it. Let's pray. Father... We come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I beg you again tonight for the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, this is a subject that, although meant for victory for the child of God, unfortunately for many today, for a number of reasons, it seems to be the part that brings about the greatest defeats. So, Lord, I pray that we would believe right so we could live right and do right and please our God. And, Lord, we'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How often Christians get discouraged. They get discouraged with their lives because they feel they do not measure up 
to the Christian standards that they have set for themselves. I really think anybody who's been saved any length of time at all has had at least one time when they've been extremely discouraged with themselves and their sorry walk with their God. I can't imagine a person going through life and never having a tough time. The Apostle Paul had a tough time. In chapter 7, he will go on to say, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I mean, that sounds like discouragement to me. Or First Timothy chapter 1, when he gives his testimony about having been a blasphemer and injurious and all that, and he says, but I received forgiveness because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And then he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He does not say of whom I was chief. Before as a lost man, he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He, was, he had people put to death. He was a wicked man before he got saved, but he received forgiveness because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. And he says, this is the faithful saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What's the difference? Well, now when he sins, he knows better. Before, when he did what he did, he thought he was doing right. Even Jesus said to the disciples, the time will come when those that killeth you will think they doeth God's service. That was the apostle Paul. He recognized now that that was horrible, but he received forgiveness. But he says, I am the chief of sinners. Because now when we sin, we have no excuse. We know better. We have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. We did not have that before we got saved. So many are defeated because they did something or responded in a certain way that they knew was not right. Some get so discouraged in their Christian walk that they will say, well, what's the use? It seems like I have to keep asking God to forgive me. I keep failing him and failing him and failing him. I'm so defeated. What is the use? Now, we know that God expects every Christian to live a holy life. Holiness, I want you to get to what I'm about to say here. Holiness is not just expected. It is the birthright of every believer. And in the passage that we read, he explains to us why that is so. Now, some, when they think of holiness, think of ladies with their hair up in a bun. Although even the groups that used to do that don't do that much anymore, but that seemed to be a sign of some kind of special uh, spirituality at one time. Others, when they think of holiness, think that it means that a Christian can never smile. Others, when they think of the term holiness, all they think about are the prohibitions, the things that they're not supposed to do. Others, when they think of holiness, think particularly of a manner of dress. To others, it means an unattainable 
perfection, discouragement. You understand that the word holy, that same a form of that word is also translated sanctify or sanctify in the New Testament. It literally means to be separated from something to something. For instance, as I gave the illustration not too long ago about these chairs up here. The company that made these chairs, no doubt, had thousands and thousands of chairs just like these. But we took these chairs from that company. They were set apart from that company to Madison Baptist Church. They have a particular job to do here. They no longer sit on the display floor or back in a warehouse at the old company among all the other chairs. They are now set apart from that to this. We have been set apart from the world unto our God. It's not just saying no to some things but also saying yes to some things. Separated from sin unto God, and that means conduct befitting those who are separated. For instance, in the New Testament, we'll not look at all the verses tonight dealing with holiness, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, he begins talking about possessing our vessel unto holiness, meaning our body. He is using the term in contrast to immorality. That's something a Christian ought never do. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians, he tells us that's one of those things that should never once be named among the brethren. Never once. Why? Because we are brethren. That shouldn't be part of our life. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Peter used it in contrast to the evil desires that we had when we were outside of Christ. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11, the term holiness is a contrast with those who do wrong and are vile. It's a contrast from that. That's not our lifestyle. After all, we're not children of darkness. We're children of the light. We're children of the day and we're to live like it. To live holy is to live in conformity to the moral precepts of the Bible. Literally, New Testament theology is this, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Now, he tells us why we can do that and how we can do that in this passage. And we'll go into that in more detail later on. But for right now, let me give you some simple points here, but they're profound. If you miss the basis of this, you're going to find yourself in continual defeat in your life. Holiness, get this, is for us. Look at verse 14 again. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. Okay. Well, let's start out, first of all, by what is sin? What is sin? And people have a rather vague ideology about that or a theo vague theology about that. It's like the lady who was sick one Sunday couldn't go to church. Her husband went to church and he came home that uh, after church got out. And she said, what did the preacher preach on? And he said, sin. What did he say about it? He was against it. Well, what sin? What is sin? Now, you know the verses, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whoso committeth sin 
transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. That is God's definition. That's written in 1 John chapter 3, written 60 years after Jesus died on the cross, written in one of the last, pardon me, books to be written in the New Testament. So he tells us here, sin shall not have dominion over you. And yet we seem to be constantly defeated by it. We ask an obvious question, why? If it shall not have dominion over us, then why is it we are defeated so many times by it in our life? And I think there are three reasons. Number one, our attitude towards sin. Now, I want you to get this. I want you to get this. If you've got a bulletin, write it in that place in the back to write it uh, or write it on a piece of paper in your Bible. And I want you to meditate on this. Unfortunately for us, our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. It is self-centered rather than God-centered. That's one of our problems. We're more concerned about our victory rather than we are the grief that we cause our God when we sin. We want to feel good. We think the Christian life is about feeling good. That's not what it's about. Feeling good or being victorious in your Christian life is simply a byproduct. It's not the end product. It is a byproduct of obedience to our God. And so when we fail, we feel bad for ourselves. We feel bad about how bad we feel that we've done wrong. We feel like failures. We feel cheap. And that's what concerns us. When what ought to concern us is we have sinned against God. When David writes his prayer of confession in Psalm 51... He says to the Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now you read that and you think, well, what about Uriah? I think he was sinned against. Don't you think he was? But when it comes to the sin, it's not that it was a sin against Uriah that was so bad. It was a sin against God that was so bad. Too many times our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than it is God-centered. God wants us to walk in obedience. Victory is a byproduct of that obedience. Our concern should be obedience, not victory. It's a simple matter. Obey God. Just a simple matter. Just obey God. Number two, we misunderstand what it means to live by faith. Now, the term... The just shall live by faith appears four times in our Bible. It appears in the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. It appears in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. It appears in Galatians and it appears also in Hebrews. Four times we find that phrase, the just shall live by faith. Well, what what does that mean, the just shall live by faith? Galatians 2.20, he says, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live by, uh, life which I now live by, by the faith of Christ. I've lost the verse. My mind has gone blank. The thought just totally dropped into my knee. Galatians two twenty. So let me get to it here. 
He says, for I'm knowing that a man, I'll get the right verse. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. <coughs> Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We must face the fact that we have a personal responsibility to walk in holiness and the fact that we can walk in holiness because the old man's been crucified with Christ. Now, we read that in Romans chapter 6. We read it again in Galatians chapter 2. For I am crucified with Christ. He took care of that on the cross. Before I sinned ignorantly and in unbelief, I couldn't help it. I didn't know better. Man, I used to have a foul mouth. It didn't bother me to cuss. I could cuss at a whim. I could say anything and not feel bad about saying it. But I got saved. What on earth cleaned up my mouth? He did. Now, could this mouth still curse? Yes, it could. I recognize I don't have to. And I don't. I say that if I get backslidden enough, I'll do it tomorrow. I hope I don't. I don't want to, but thank God I don't have to. I know that because the old man has been crucified with him. One pastor heard a similar statement concerning people who had some battles that he didn't have and agreed with the statement. The Holy Spirit reminded him he had personal responsibility in the battles of his life. We need to understand, we have a personal responsibility. Uh, You remember the comedian many, many years ago back in the 60s by the name of Flip Wilson? Well, a lot of you don't remember that. Uh, But you older people, you remember Flip Wilson. And he would, one of his stock sayings to bring a laugh was, the devil made me do it. Well, today we don't blame the devil, which is good because he can't make us do anything. But we say the flesh made me do it. But do you realize because the old man's been crucified with Christ, even the flesh can't make me do it. The flesh can tempt me. The flesh can be enticing, but it can't make me. It is a matter of the will. It's not something we can't help. We could help it, but we don't. Acknowledging that responsibility will be the turning point in everybody's life. Here's the third reason. We don't take sin seriously. We have mentally categorized sin. Well, sin's unacceptable, but we have to tolerate it. Because after all, none of us can be perfect. Even though Jesus gave this command, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in in heaven is perfect, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Interesting statement. Well, how could I be then what I ought to be? Well, I've been crucified with Christ. The old man's been crucified with Christ. So that's taken care of. But we have taken sin, and here's the thing. We are more concerned about the size of the sin than we are the fact of the sin. I want you to get this. We have become like the Catholics who have the light sins and the really bad sins. Now, we would never put it in their terminology. We would never use that. Andrew Bonar, the Welsh preacher, said this, it is not the importance of the thing, but the majesty of the lawgiver. 
that is to be the standard of obedience. Is the Lord to be obeyed in all things whatsoever he commands? Is he a holy lawgiver? Are his creatures bound to give implicit assent to his will? Are we willing to call sin, sin, not because it's big or little, but because God's law forbids it? You read through the book of Deuteronomy and over and over as God repeats his law to the Jews in the book of Deuteronomy, over and over he says, oh, that they would obey my commandments with all their heart. He was looking for a people. That's why it was never about the promised land. God was giving them a land where they could go to and worship God according to God's rules and God's laws. It was never about the land being special. They were special. And now they were going to have a land where they could be the people that God wanted them to be. And of course, they failed miserably. The problem wasn't where they were living. The problem was the decisions that they were making. When we talk about the size of the sin, let me ask you, in the Garden of Eden, How big was that sin? I'm not asking you about the final result. How big was it? If we're going to label sins as sins are, oh, some people say murder, that's that's a terrible sin. Uh, Fornication, that's a horrible sin. Adultery, horrible sin. Uh, Stealing, horrible sin. Okay. Uh, What sin was done in the garden? God had told Adam and Eve that there's one tree in the garden that you can't eat of. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you can't eat of that tree. God did not say they couldn't touch it. He said they were not to eat of the tree. So when Satan comes along in the form of a serpent, and he starts out by saying, hath God said? Now, first of all, as soon as she heard a snake talking, her antenna should have gone up. She should have said, I don't belong here. Uh, You go see my husband. She doesn't do that. And then when she says that they they were not to eat it or touch it lest they die, then he says, you'll not surely die. And you've got a lot of people saying that about disobedience to God's word. There is not a judgment for it. You're under grace. You're not under the law. We just read we're not under the law. But that's supposed to translate into some kind of living. The fact that we're not under the law. Under the law we're defeated, but now we don't have to disobey the law because of who we have trusted. So we look at the Garden of Eden. We don't know how many fruit there was on the tree. It was not an apple tree. Now get that settled. That's just one of those fairy tales People tell it was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some things we know about that fruit, though, it was pleasant to the eyes. The food was, it looked desirous to eat. And it looked like something that would make them smarter. It's funny, I've never looked at a carrot thinking that would make me smarter or an apple or anything else. But she was, she had already rejected what God said. She had already taken the devil at his word instead of God at his word. So she takes of the tree, as far as we know, one fruit. That's it. 
As far as we know, she took one bite. She may have eaten a bushel of them, but the scripture doesn't tell us that. She ate of that one fruit. And she gave to her husband, and he ate. They did not commit adultery. They did not commit murder. They did not cut the tree down. They did not rob the tree of all of its fruit and sell it to make money. They did not stop the tree from bearing fruit. God said, the day you eat, you die. They ate. How big a deal is that? I mean, there's more fruit on the tree. And you've got to admit, if God wanted more, he could make more trees, couldn't he? He's God. He can do anything he wants to do. So how big a deal is this? Well, you're going to die because of it. I'm going to die because of it. People that have gone on before us have had to die because of it. You see, God said, don't do it. There's death in that tree. You eat of that tree, you'll die. They ate. And now we have to die because of it. I'd say it was a big deal. See, it's not what we think of it. It's not whether or not we think this is some major, major. No, no, no. If God says no, it is a big deal. Now, we have to learn that. We shouldn't have any trouble learning that since we have, those of us who are saved, the Holy Spirit of God living within us. So keep, uh, go back in Romans, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is all part of the first point, by the way. We're almost done with this point. Say, so how many points are there? I'm not going to tell you. Because you'll start counting. Notice verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness. All right, here we go. Fornication. Now, if we were to label that, we'd probably label it a big deal. Uh, then he says wickedness. We're not really sure quite what that is. He doesn't define that for us, but wickedness sounds like a big deal. How about this one? Covetousness. Not being satisfied with what you've got. Wanting what other people have. Covetousness. Is that a big deal or not? I mean, after all, the Bible does say in the book of Colossians that a a covetous man is an idolater. Is idolatry a big deal? Well, it is. All right. Then he says, maliciousness, full of envy. Well, that's not even something that's on the outside, just being full of envy, envying other people for either what they've attained, who they are, what they have, full of envy. That's not doing anything wrong. It's being wrong in your heart. Well, that doesn't seem as big as fornication, does it? Well, let's go on. He says, uh, full of envy, murder. Oh, that's a big deal. We got that one. That is a big deal. What about debate? But you notice God's putting all these in the same list. He's not putting them in any particular order because they're all sin. Every one of them. He goes on. He says, backbiters, haters of God, big deal. (laughs) Yeah, but a covetous man's an idolater. Big deal. Okay. You sold me on that one. Uh, What about, uh, let's see, in verse 30, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. 
Same list with murderers. Same list with fornicators. Let me tell you how sick we are in this nation. We get a video of a kid who's disobeying his parents. We send it into America's Funniest Home Videos, and that's the one that wins $10,000. That's how sick we are in this nation. We laugh at it, and God doesn't see it as being funny. Better be careful, grandparents, what you laugh at with your grandkids. Hmm. So we look at these things. How about boasters? What's the big deal about that? They're just full of themselves. God resisteth the proud. Give grace unto the humble, the scripture says. It's all a big deal. They're all sins mentioned by God. So holiness, number one, is for us. Second thing we need to understand is that holiness is from God. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now you'll discover this is why we're going to take a few weeks to cover all this because there's an awful lot here. We've got to get the basics for this down first or you'll never get it. Unfortunately, we have kids growing up in Christian homes who never get it. They get out of high school. They still don't get it. They've gotten a diploma, but when it comes to the smart stuff about God, they don't get it. They can win those Bible drills. They can open up their Bible faster than any of the adults in church, but they don't get its truth. Somehow we've got to change that. We've got to see to it that they get it before they get out of the home and into the world. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. Notice in verse 14 of chapter 1, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The call to a holy life is based on this fact. God is is holy. Three times at least, maybe more, in the book of Leviticus, God tells his people, be ye holy, for I am holy. Three times at least. Now, what's our reason for being holy? The reason for being holy is that God's holy. But we think, well, those people, that was those people back then. They were in the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. All right. This is the New Testament. And he's telling New Testament Christians, you're to be holy because he is holy. Now, don't get upset with me at first. Let me complete my thought before you get angry. Okay. This book right here is not the standard for holiness. What? Wait. This book is not the standard for holiness. What I just read to you in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's very, very plain about. God himself is the standard for holiness. This book reveals to us what that standard is what it means, what it should mean in our life. How do I know what it means to be holy right here? 
When the Bible describes God, how does it describe it? It describes him as holy. That's the kind of holy he wants us to be. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Psalm 99 and verse 9. We find in Isaiah 57, 15, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Psalm 22, the scripture says, yeah, Psalm 22, and I think it's verse 31. He says, uh, he says something about holiness that left my mind, but I'm going to move on. Maybe it'll come back to me later. Um, the standard of holiness comes from nothing else but God himself. God is holy. His holiness is as necessary as is his omniscience, as is his omnipotence, as, in, as is his uh, omnipresence. It's as necessary as his immutability. Now, those are all nice 50-cent uh, seminary words that simply says he is all everything. And he is holy. Do you realize if he was not holy, then nobody knows how to get saved because you don't know if he's lying to you or not. Thank God he's holy. The fact that he is holy lets us know that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, no question about it. There's a reason in Titus 1, 2, he says, for it is impossible for God to lie. Why? He's holy. That's why. We couldn't claim any of the promises of God if it wasn't for the fact that he is holy. So we can claim his promises with assurance and that brings comfort because he is holy. And he says, that's what I want in you. That's what I want in Mike Allison. So there's comfort in this. Bible says in Habakkuk 1.13 that he is a purer eyes than to behold evil. Because God is holy, he can never tempt us to sin. He tells us he won't in the book of James. When we are confronted with a problem and it seems like the way out is to shade the truth or to deceive, we know automatically it's not of God. For God is holy. Because he is holy, he hates sin. We need to cultivate a hatred for sin in our lives. The Bible says, ye that love the Lord... Hate evil. We're too ambivalent. We are told not to judge anything. That as long as it's okay in anybody's eyes, it's okay. No, if it's not okay in God's eyes, it's not okay. You'll never get it settled if you don't get that settled. You remember David... Messed around with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered. The prophet comes in to see him and says, let me tell you a story. And he tells about a very rich man, had all kinds of flocks and sheep and so on. But he took the little ewe lamb that was loved by a man. It was the only lamb that he had. That was it. And he killed it to feed a friend. And Nathan asked him about that. And he said, what should be done? That man will have to repay fourfold and he's to be put to death. Boy, he's angry. He's hot about that. And then the prophet said to him, you're the man, David. You're the man. We're real quick to spot the evil in other people. Our problem is we don't see the evil in us. 
In Psalm 139, David talks about all those things about God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, all of that. And then he says near the end of the psalm, he says, Do not I hate them that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Ah, but he's learned. So he says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Notice, wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. God is always honored by our doing right. So holiness, number one, is for us. Number two, holiness is from God. And finally, so how many points am I giving you? Three. Uh, Finally, holiness is not an option. Turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12. Verse 14. He says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the lord shall see the lord now first our holiness before god depends entirely on the work of jesus christ on the cross of calvary he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth he, romans chapter 10 and verse 4 however this verse speaks of our effort Because the Bible says we're to follow peace with all men and holiness. We're to follow holiness. The very word itself implies effort. It has the idea of making an effort. Now, I've been made holy. I've been separated from the world to God because of the work of Christ. So, by the way, when I I pray, God doesn't see me. He sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. According to Romans chapter 3, I am now clothed in his righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When he sees me, he sees Christ because I am covered by his righteousness. So you can't get to heaven until you get saved. And are covered spiritually by his blood. But here it says follow holiness. And this is important that we understand it. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Go over to it just a few pages before Hebrews chapter 12. You know these pretty good. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation. These false grace people. Some have called them hyper-grace people, but it's a distorted grace people. Uh, But God's grace is always according to his word. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Boy, that really bothers the Calvinists right there. Teaching us, here's what the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. In this present world, the same grace that brings salvation teaches us to deny worldly lust. 
to do right, to live right. So that leads me to three sub-points to this last one and we'll be done. Number one, holiness is required for fellowship with God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. When you hear somebody say, oh, well, that's a gray area. What are we doing in a gray area? For in him is no darkness at all. If we're going to walk in the gray areas, we're not fellowshipping with him. That's not where he wants us. He wants us in the light as he is in the light. And this is absolutely vital. Psalm 66 and verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sin has hid his face from you that he will not hear. In Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2, the scripture says, Lord, who shall abide in in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He says, follow, follow. You see, not only is holiness required for fellowship with God, holiness requires his chastening to correct our rebellion. Hebrews chapter 12 deals with God's chastisement. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, and are ye bastards and not sons. You get to verse 11. Verse 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. But nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. When we do wrong, when we sin, if you're saved, your God chastens you. He chastens all of his children to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to us. And thirdly, holiness is required for effective service for God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, he says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be... A sanctified, a vessel unto honor, meet for the master's use. You want to be used of God? You want your life to count for God? Then holiness is absolutely necessary. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, we'll close with the passage we started with. Go back to Romans chapter 6. So that you understand that this matter of the holy walk does require some things from us. He's already made the necessary provision. We are crucified with Christ. The old man's crucified with Christ. And then he deals with that for the next few verses. He gets to verse 11, and then he gives a command. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Reckon yourselves. Now, that's something we have to do. That's not something he does. That's something we're supposed to do. That's a command to us. But then he says in the very next verse, 
Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. You've got the power not to let sin reign in your body. He says so. Well, how do I have that power? Because the old man's been crucified with Christ. That's why. The old man is crucified with him. That's how I, I don't have to let sin reign in my body. All right. I, I was never a drinker. Never a drinker. When I was lost, I didn't drink. Uh, I, I never had a drop of alcohol that even tasted good. I thought, man, this stuff is terrible, horrible. I was brought up in a drunkard's home. I didn't drink. I didn't have to, I didn't have to stop because I never started. But that doesn't mean that I couldn't end up being a drunk tomorrow. If I started thinking, well, matter of fact, I know of a preacher up in Virginia. He was a well-known Baptist preacher. And he was going through some things. He had some pain and to help him with the pain, to help him sleep. Uh, he started drinking a little bit. It wasn't, he ended up getting, I don't know, three or four DUIs. And when finally it became known that it happened, he ended up losing his church and everything else. Now, how could he go all those years and not drink, and now suddenly he's drinking? Because I've never drunk doesn't mean that I couldn't mess up with it. I mean, after all, the Bible says in Galatians 6 and verse 1, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Well, that could be me. What do I have to do? Say no. Just keep saying no. Just keep saying no. Just keep saying no. I, I, I don't hang around where it's going to be offered to me, but I, you just keep saying no. But notice that's our responsibility. Let not sin. It's up to you. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. And then he gets to verse 13. Neither yield your, your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Don't yield your members to it. That's up to you. You have a choice. Over in the book of uh, Colossians chapter 3, he says, Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. Well, hallelujah. See, our problem is if we're going to hang around that stuff, it won't be long. We're going to be into it. Not because we, we couldn't mess up, but because we didn't take sin seriously. Now, we learned a number of things about sin. We don't, God doesn't mean for us to walk in defeat. We are to be a victory people. But we're going to have to make some spiritual decisions to seek holiness, to hate evil. To hate evil because we love a holy God who hates evil. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. Now, we've got more lessons we're going to give on this in the weeks that are coming up. But I want you to know there can be victory in your life. But that's not the main thing you should be seeking. Obedience. Victory is just simply a byproduct of obedience. So let's not concentrate on the victory. Concentrate on obedience. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray you'd help us. This is an area that, unfortunately, many people, because they didn't understand some of these concepts, have been over and over again defeated in their walk with you. So, Lord, I pray that you'd teach us, help us, Lord, I believe there are people here tonight that want to live pleasing to their God. So God, give them hope tonight and strength as we cover this in the weeks to come. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.